Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, I'm really well. I've, I've finished the, the big textbook. I'm so excited. I, I haven't sent it off yet to Rutledge Press, but I will uh, very soon. One final little, you know, read-through, maybe, uh, just to make sure. That, I mean, not a real read-through. I'm, I'm pretty happy with it, and I'm, I'm excited to have it finished. I'm excited for you. I know that that has been your major project over the past, gosh, it has to have been a year, right? I feel like you've been working on it since we began this show. Well, pretty much I have. It, it took a long time to actually get the uh, the deal worked out. Um, so some of that may have been, you know, finalizing the pitch and, and working on the parameters. <clears throat> it's It's kind of a little bit of an ironic thing of being able to get a contract on a spec, you know, on having not done anything. But on the other hand, what I had to do to get it was was a separate sort of uh, body of work unto itself. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I should tell listeners that that you are one of the contributors, and I, I feel very grateful for your contribution. I think it slots into a, a very nice place. It wasn't really a question of where it would go. It's in the fiction section. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I'm pleased with that being... Uh, uh, an, an important contribution, and I, I think the, that what you say is is really uh, you know adds something, and will add something for this audience. Thank you. I was happy to do it. I look forward to any opportunity that I have to talk about really anything that relates to the creative process. I just get a kick out of doing that. So I'm really excited to see the finished product. I think that'll definitely help. There's a lot of musty, stodgy writing textbooks that, you know, just aren't any fun. And I can't imagine that's the route that you chose to go with this one. So should be quite interesting. Fun and adventure are really the watchwords. And I think that, that it really is true. There's just not enough fun in, in, in the books that are out there. And there's also not enough program. There's quite a bit of excitement in terms of moving parts and things to do and uh, really, you know, activities, both from the point of view of of instructors who may not really be good teachers. They could be good writers, but they're not necessarily, you know, good teachers. And also from the self-learning point of view, which I think is one of the big growth areas uh, coming forward. And it ties in with stuff that you and I are going to be doing in terms of of launching our courses in uh in the, in the months ahead. So some cool stuff. Yeah, actually, I'm really glad that you mentioned that. I would like to remind folks that Chris and I have a Patreon now where we're going to be putting the second half of all of these episodes. We decided that we had enough gas in the tank to provide an additional hour to the podcast for our subscribers. And we actually do have some subscribers now and I would like to shout them out on the show. I would like to thank Kelby Losack, Jay Springett of the 301 podcast and uh, thejmo.net, which is a fantastic website. Jay is such a cool thinker about a lot of things, but mainly um, sort of technology, the internet, AI, where all of that is going. Uh, Also, thank you to uh, SickFix, Scott Hales, Ned Booth, and JB. So thanks to our first six patrons. This is very exciting. Yeah. Pretty decent, decent pace. Not not bad for a not bad for a relatively new show, I would say. 
I think it's really cool. And Scott Hales is a terrific listener, very, very smart fellow who's been with us since we started. Uh, he's a friend of mine on Facebook. Um, he lives just uh, over in California, but I've never actually met him face to face. But he is always sending through interesting material to me, uh, always on point, very interested in uh, our anthropology um, investigations and just a really cool person who's connecting with the kinds of things that we're interested in. Fantastic. So once again, thank you to those patrons for signing up. If you haven't signed up yet, you can do so over at patreon.com slash no country podcast. I'll have a link for that in the show notes. If you need a direct link to that, uh, all the contributions that you can provide would be greatly appreciated for this because Chris and I are very interested in making this project our whole thing, for lack of a better way of describing it. We're going to be including book club, the book club and the aforementioned courses. So do head on over there. Um, there will be an extra hour every single week of this show. So if you like the kind of strange, esoteric, thought-provoking things that Chris and I talk about for an hour every week, we're going to double down on those in the bonus hour. So with that, Chris, what are we going to talk about today? Okay, well, we were having some fun talking about two great popular myths of our time, namely UFOs. There's really a huge mythology about that. We talked about Jung's involvement with that. We've, there's more to be said in terms of how that's impacted on popular culture. Uh, everyone has seen, you know, many movies and TV shows with that theme and it is it come you know we can arrive at that from from several different points of view it's it's a very i think that's part of its power and its intrigue is it's very hard to avoid being interested in it and there are so many different ways to approach it and then in another register we looked at and i think it really is a different register i've been thinking about this uh in the in the intervening days uh bigfoot um, and, and we pulled apart some aspects of, of the Bigfoot story. And, of course, it ties in with the Yeti. And there are other creatures like this around the world. Uh, but it really is a very, very different thing. Uh, and yet what's odd is, is you can really comfortably place UFOs and Bigfoot in the same sentence. And if people remember the good old World Weekly News... I think one of the best journalism, if I can use the word journalism, <laughs> uh, tabloid uh, creations of all time, um, the best headlines. And I did, I did write a few headlines for them. Um, I was getting paid 25 bucks a headline. Um, mm -hmm. That was a long time ago. But y you could comfortably say they, they would put those in the same headline and they could really keep recycling them. So there's mm -hmm. something about uh, the, the durability of these myths that I think we do need to get to in this show. And the, the pure fun of them. Uh, Bigfoot, as we said last episode, we couldn't really think of very many sinister, dark uh, aspects of that, like a Bigfoot attack or Bigfoot on the rampage or... Um, 
a, a group of, of Bigfoots, you know, attacking a trailer park, for instance. But the UFO side definitely does have a, a potential dark side. So there's mm-hmm. that to pull apart. How is that as a starting point? And uh, then maybe we can talk about any UFO uh, or Bigfoot experiences that we've personally had. I think that's awesome. I think that the link between alien encounters and a sort of sinister probing and abduction is very interesting. I wonder if you can think of what sort of myths throughout time that might be a kind of update of. Because I feel like with aliens in particular, you don't normally have an encounter with an alien that is benign. Uh, They don't walk into your living room, say what's up, and watch TV with you, right? It's always this, you know, sort of forceful being pulled up from the ground into a craft that's floating in the sky. And usually the encounters run one of two ways or both. Uh, They're either sexual in nature or violent in nature. And they they sort of cross in that way. So again, I wonder if there's any sort of predecessor myths for that. Uh, And also, I wonder what you think is going on with the violent sexuality of alien encounters. Okay. Well, I I think we do need to mention, you know, things like E.T. There there are some benign examples where we have essentially in in story motif, in world folktale, fairy tale motif terms, we have a continuation of, of, of the fairy world. You know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. so there is that it, it, it doesn't get as much attention, mainly because I think it's not I think we're, we're more drawn to to dark stories uh, and, and many fairy tales. You know, if you look at the, the world of, of, say, just European fairy tales, uh, the ones we remember are kind of the dark and grisly ones, you know, Hansel and Gretel, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in answer to the question is, are is there a, a body of mythology or, or just simply narrative that um, pre, you know, is a kind of a predecessor. Uh, and yes, there is. There, there's the whole category of the captivity narrative, which, which dates back in time quite a long ways, really, but it was a very popular uh, motif genre in the 19th century, hugely popular in, in women's, what were called the sort of the sentimental novel category. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's not my term. That, that's what they were billed as. And this was the first time that we, uh, in publishing terms, saw a kind of a book club. It was the beginning of of all book clubs. Women could subscribe uh, to get these books, and they they simply arrived by, you know, whatever, you know, they were slow to get there. But it was an interesting uh, innovation within the publishing industry of its time. And the captivity narrative often had to do with uh, women being uh, kidnapped by, say, Native American tribes, uh, bandits, or Mormons. Uh, mm-hmm. There was some interesting, an interesting cast of characters who, uh, and, and the stories could go in a couple of different ways. We could have a heroic rescue of the endangered maiden. Uh, we could have women finding courage and becoming heroic figures, and escaping themselves, we there were there were examples that are 
uh, were hugely popular in their time, uh, forgotten now, where um, the, the women stayed on and became mm-hmm. kind of leaders. And we, we tend to forget all this because uh, while we think we, we don't think very highly of uh, super popular women's fiction, even today we don't look at the, the way we treat romance novels, but there was an enormous body of popular culture that if the writing itself wasn't fantastic, and I think it's fair to say it often wasn't, um, nevertheless, as a popular culture phenomenon, it, it should be given more respect. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Th- there's that. Now, where I think um, the, the probing and the violence and this weird mix of, of sex and science comes from, I, I think it's very, very clear that it comes from the, the mental health field and, and the atrocities uh, committed in the name of, of psych, you know, psychiatric medicine, electroshock mm-hmm. therapy, mm-hmm. insulin shock therapy. Um, one of my, I don't know if I mentioned this, but one of my magic books is called Care of the Feeble-Minded and Insane in Texas. It was published in 1912. And the significance for me is I was clean, I was, my job was a janitor uh, in college at the time. And I was so bored sweeping down the entire huge steepled library. Uh, I dropped a hit of acid and just really started enjoying communing with all these books. <laughs> and as I was you know, winding down with this simply enormous push broom, a su- really smooth, soft push broom from the top bell tower all the way down to the study hall on the ground floor, I knocked this book out. And I said to myself, this has got to be something significant and it is significant it absolutely is it's it it was it's a really serious book documenting just how horrific the treatment of the so-called insane and feeble-minded just have a think about that that phrase for a moment um and and think about how broad that category could be um and it was really, really awful. So what my point is, is that I think that what we have in a lot of the space alien stories is a delay action allegory about the alien nature of human behavior. All, all voyages to other worlds are always human allegories. You know, that, that's always mm-hmm. been true. Uh, from, you know, Plutarch's voyage to the moon, uh, you know, on and on and on. And I think what what the space aliens story can do, and I'm not saying that they aren't real, but but if we look at them just as a narrative, as a, as a mythology, part of what their their function, their social function, is to try to help us cope with the absolutely alien and bizarre behavior that humans have gotten up to. And one crucial area is is in uh, the the barbarism of, of mental health treatment. Yeah, I would definitely get behind that. It makes it comes to mind uh, Whitley Strieber's book Communion, which was a huge bestseller when it was released back in the eighties. I think it was late eighties that that came out. But that book has a lot of instances of lost time, right? 
Yes. Uh, he often has flashbacks to being abducted by these aliens. Um, Streber's encounter with the alien was sexual in nature. Uh, if I remember correctly, the alien is a female, and it's sort of this, um, there's a lot of pain, but also pleasure involved in it. And it's a really good book from what I remember. I read it back in high school when I was going through my big, you know, sort of paranormal creature phase. Uh, speaking of the sort of treatment of the mentally infirm, there's a lot of uh, hypnosis that's used in uh, reliving these alien abduction flashbacks. And anytime hypnosis is involved in these kind of things, I get very, very skeptical because of hypnosis's hypnotist's ability to implant memories in people. And I have a very specific memory from a documentary called Hellier. Did you ever watch this, this yes, two-season yes. documentary? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a sequence in there, and the practitioners of this experiment sort of cop to the fact that this was a highly unethical thing to do, but they caught the whole thing on camera. They took a poor hapless volunteer uh, who didn't obviously didn't think anything was going to come of this, and they had him undergo hypnosis to revisit an alien abduction. And he's on camera as the hypnotist is guiding him through this abduction experience. And to this day... Uh, the guy claims that, you know, he wasn't, the memory wasn't implanted in in him at all. But in fact, the hypnotist awakened in him something that he had repressed. So I found that very disturbing to watch. Whenever I encounter uh, just how easily the human mind can be manipulated and things can be implanted uh, into it, it, man, it just gives me the willies. Because I start to think in a very Philip K. Dickian style of, of, in a very Philip K. Dick type of way, well, then how many of my memories are real, right? How, what, what, what do I actually uh, remember from all this? But there is also, I think, that element to it of uh, it's possible that people are touching on past traumas, but it also could be that you know, hypnotists and uh, paranormal investigators are working from a shared mythology that they could potentially be suggesting to people who are under the influence, who unfortunately will then forever, for the rest of their lives, believe themselves to have been abducted by aliens. I I certainly think that's very possible. A a few things there. One of the, I became a great fan of, of Philip K. Dick, fairly late in my life, I did not know that he uh, was a neighbor of ours in Berkeley for years on Francisco Street. Mm, Um, And I I think I might have mentioned that he wrote a wonderful, hilariously ironic uh, letter to the editor on the day that I was born. Um, Mm. He's complaining about, uh, well, Herb uh, Cain was a local columnist and big shot of the San Francisco Chronicle who was then very uh, concerned if the if the beatnik era would ever leave because it just kept getting reinvented and reinvented and reinvented and and Dick writes as if he's in the 18th century and uh, you know all these uh, lazy people hanging around coffee houses and printing out pamphlets and you know very funny thing but uh, for people who are interested in the whole hypnosis thing I think it is worth 
checking out Milton Erickson's uh, work on this. He was a very, very serious practitioner uh, and, and wrote very carefully about it. Um, very, one of the key popularizers of it in terms of um, psychological treatment. And he was very concerned about its potential. He, he of course, believed that he was practicing it very um, judiciously and, and with real prudence. But he, he did note the, the, the possibilities of, of it going very, very wrong. And, and, of course, his analogy was that it is like unto a drug. And he wasn't saying that drugs should be used in hypnosis at all. He was just, just the opposite. But he said that the possibilities of it, the power of it, um, and of course, a lot of people don't believe they you know don't believe in hypnosis. Um, but I think it is worth um, it is worth considering, and I think his work uh, because it, it, he laid the foundations for it, getting any real serious traction uh, in the psychological profession. It's worth checking him out. But I mean, think back to. Uh, the whole false memory syndrome of the 90s, you know, mm -hmm. where there were serious numbers of people coming forward, uh, usually with a story of, of child abuse, repressed mm -hmm. child abuse, and where that often went to uh, was legal action against parents. And, I mean, it was quite a big deal. There were, there were about 20, you know, incidents that I can recall uh, that made the news and uh, really created tremendous trauma. Uh, all of them, as far as I know, uh, were basically dismissed. Maybe not every single one, but as a phenomenon, as a collective group phenomenon, it was completely trashed. Um, yeah. And I think that would be worth um, looking at. And as a subset of that, we did mention last time, uh, people who recall being abducted by satanic cults or uh, perhaps not satanic cults, but just strange cults. Um, mm -hmm. and, and there were quite a few of them. They, they, they were certainly a lot of them in California. Australia had quite a few of them. Um, you know, pretty sizable groups of people, 60, 70 uh, people, usually with a matriarch or patriarch kind of figure uh, gathering uh, young people. And it was I mean, mm, just mm -hmm, mm -hmm. kind of hard to believe that that, uh, and oftentimes these people, and the one, the, the occasion that I'm thinking of in Australia, I think they were called the family. Um, Ruth or Anne, Anne was her name. Uh, she had money. Uh, so that helped, that helped keep, uh, you know, the lid on things. And it also helped her network with, with rich people. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and it, Kind of makes me think just off the top of my head of Jeffrey Epstein, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, it does, so, it's almost as if there might be a trend here with the super wealthy and um, sort of deviant sexual activities um, as a bonding ritual, perhaps. That's always the way that I've conceived of it as, right? Whether or not these particular people have these proclivities to begin with, or if it's a kind of mutually assured destructive blackmail. It That's what you were talking about last time, which yeah, I thought was right. very interesting. I thought mm -hmm. that was very interesting because, I mean, the point that you made about it was that um, short of, of murder, uh, and, and maybe even more uh, than murder, that, that, that pedophilia has such a moral uh, stain 
that that you know oozes out from it. Uh, right. It would be very difficult to think of anything more powerful as as a kind of communal blackmail device. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you have to imagine that there might have existed a time where something as simple as committing adultery, or you know maybe a little bestiality, might have been enough to mutually assure destruction. But we have unfortunately moved way beyond that in our current culture. And I wish I could say that we haven't in terms of bestiality, but, you know, I'd invite you to look at furry conventions and reevaluate <laughs> that that idea. You know, you mentioned drugs when it came to hypnosis and aliens and things of that nature. It reminds me of a story of mine that I'm not sure that I told on the podcast or not, but uh, I was with friends and we had ingested San Pedro cactus, which contains mescaline, and... What's interesting about San Pedro is that the cactus, uh, when it's ground up, does not have an equally distributed amount of mescaline. So we mixed it up with water to create these kind of little uh, disgusting slugs that we all ate. We put cinnamon on it to make it taste better, Um, and it didn't. Um, And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, I got all of the mescaline, right? And I was sort of on the floor of my friend's apartment and I was watching him with one of those old overhead projectors that you probably don't see anymore, but that we used to have a lot of in classrooms. They were pretty ubiquitous. And he was putting colored food dye bags on the overhead projector and it was pretty trippy. It was pretty cool. But after everybody (laughs) went to bed, kind of disappointed that they didn't get any, my trip really kicked in in earnest. And at this time, I was uh, separated from my current wife, and I was sort of going through a dark night of the soul. And I encountered, through this mescaline, two gray aliens, the way that you would see them in a movie, right? And a lot of hallucinations in, uh, whether it's mescaline or or acid or even, you know, something like, well, I guess I wouldn't include DMT in that because it's a bit more powerful. But hallucinations, in my experience with those hallucinogens, uh, tend to be read as such. Your brain is able to go along with the weirdness, but recognize it as a product of the drug. But these aliens looked like I could have reached out and touched them, right? Two of them were just kind of standing there. And they gave me a psychic vision of my future. And it's a bit of an involved story, but um, suffice it to say, uh, all of it came true, which is very bizarre. So I, I ponder over that very often, like what was going on with that? You know, it's, it's tempting to think of it in terms of, okay, number one, it's a hallucination brought on by a drug that's, you know, it's an entheogen, it's a hallucinogenic property. It's what it's supposed to do. But I can't quite shake the fact that the, the visions that were, uh, given to me by these two beings, some of them very mundane and some of them very intense and powerful, uh, all came to pass. And I actually am have a record of this trip that I scrawled on a sheet of paper and several bar napkins to my friend who I'd had the, the trip with the next day. And when I brought those napkins back to him, when I moved back here to Oklahoma and told him some of the stories and how these uh, how these things came true, the color sort of drained from his face, you know, <laughs> because he was there when 
I was telling him all of these things that were going to happen. And to hear me kind of confirm and have sort of photographic evidence and also just sort of life experience evidence for it, uh, I think it maybe shook him just as much as it shook shook me. So I don't know what's going on with that. You know, uh, is the is the peyote button uh, God's little telephone? You know, is a is it a hallucination or is it a key to unlock a door to actually talk to these things? I'm on the fence. I don't know. Well, that, that's of course what Terence McKenna really uh, spent his whole uh, intellectual and, and adventure life, you know, looking into. Um, there are a couple of things that strike me. First of all, I, I was so glad that uh, uh, they didn't probe you. I, I was a little bit concerned we were, yeah. we were going to... Uh, we we're going to go into a, to an uncomfortable place. Yeah. yeah. Thankfully, thankfully yeah. there was no physical contact. <laughs> it was all telepathic. Well, that, that was good. Uh, then, then I have a couple of, of, of... Well, I have a question and, and, and a framework. Um Speaking of Terence McKenna, uh, in the lectures that I've heard of his, and there are some great ones on YouTube, and, and people may know that, that Dave and I are both great aficionados of, of Terence McKenna. He's one of the most articulate people uh, I think that we've ever had. Uh, it's very unfortunate that he died so young. He was just absolutely um, a joy to listen to. And he, he was quite conscious of being a kind of new age counterculture uh, carnival showman. There was no doubt about that. But he was just so very good at it. And he was also a very good ethnobotanist and an anthropologist. So he, he was the real deal on multiple levels. But one of the uh, the motifs that, that seems to repeat in the material that, that I've come across uh, both in his video lectures and, and in his uh, published books. Um, for lack of a better term, let's call them elves. And he often uses the term machine elves. And he describes, elves, yeah. he has a kind of description of them that is decisively not uh, alien in, in the space sense. I mean, it, it just in terms of if you were the kind of, uh, you know, like a police sketch artist, and you were going to draw from his description, you would not draw anything like uh, the kind of uh, figures that we associate with Roswell and Area 51 and the whole mm -hmm. alien mm -hmm. mythology. Nothing like that at all. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. that's interesting. It is interesting. And I think, so I've heard them alternatively described as amorphous uh, praying mantis is a way that I've heard the machine elves described. And then you kind of get pictures of gnomes, you know, actual little elves. My experience with DMT, I was in the machine elf workshop very briefly, and it did strike me very much as a workshop. And the only way that I could describe it was that I was viewing it through widescreen, the way that you would see a film in widescreen. Um, I'm thinking of big coffee table books with kind of panorama shots of, I don't know, say, you know, a, a Roman amphitheater or something. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Yes, How they I can have those, lo those long tracking shots. That was the way that I was kind of witnessing this thing. And I saw uh, about three or four beings tinkering on things. And they, here's the creepiest part. They, they recognized me and they said, oh, you're back. 
and then I left again. That's it. I wish there was something cooler to report, <laughs> but it was definitely unnerving for sure. Well, there are a couple of things that, that, that uh, puzzle me about this, um, and then I'll share the the, uh, the framework of for, for the visions I've had because they're very different, and I, I have an idea where mine come from. Um, what puzzles me about the machine elves, um, and I think that, that verb tinkering is interesting. I want to get back to that. But the, the kinds of drugs that, that McKenna was uh, experimenting with or ritually using, uh, I think would, I guess, be fairer because he was, certainly was uh, using them fairly regularly, come from parts of the world that, you know, South America, for instance, Mexico. Uh, we, we, we don't associate the whole elf workshop uh, structure and anthropology with those worlds. Those, when I think of elves and workshops, I really think of, of the whole European trade guild uh, mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. Um, Santa Claus or something. Well, but a little bit more serious, you know, maybe, mm-hmm. but, but I think Santa Claus is the, the sanitized, domesticated, uh, sentimentalized version of something that might have been very, very uh, intense. But, but for mm-hmm. instance, it's not Hephaestus, the, the lame Greek uh, inventor god, the, the smith uh, forger um, and also kind of the symbol of, of technical innovation. Um, the, you know, that was a diff- that's another thing entirely yet again. So it's not Mediterranean, Middle Eastern, North African. We could have all of those streams. We could have a kind of uh, Egyptian and then, and then through Egypt into, you know, Alexandria into Prague and that whole early uh, European scene. I, I just don't get how South American vines and drugs w- would take that on. That's always puzzled me about McKenna's visions. Um, yeah, I, I might have the beginning of an answer to that. The DMT that I took was synthetic. So it had a smell like burnt plastic. Uh, my friend sprinkled it over a little bit of pot. You know, pot's totally legal in Oklahoma now, so... No statute of limitations there. You're the big there. pot state. Well, yeah, yeah, no kidding. People are making a mint over here, uh, just owning grow warehouses. It's it's incredible. But yeah, we sprinkled a little bit on, and I chickened out my first try and only sort of touched the veil. If you press your finger against a piece of rubber and then watch it kind of snap back, that's what I could describe reality doing. And then I was promptly berated by all of my friends and decided to man up and take a huge hit of this thing. And this great curtain of smoke came up. And when it dropped, I was launched into space. <clears throat> um, it's something that I will never forget. But I wonder if the if the synthetic nature of it doesn't have something to do with it. Because I have heard that ayahuasca, which has naturally occurring DMT. Well, I guess it should be noted that DMT, dimethyltryptamine, is present in every living thing. In the bo- the yeah, absolutely. Um, um, and it is noted that when a person dies, uh, their brain is actually flooded with DMT. So it's often thought of as being analogous to a, a quote-unquote death experience, whatever that might mean. But again, um, just to reiterate, I do wonder if sort of the the fact that it was cooked up 
I almost said in a lab, but probably in somebody's basement, uh, probably some retailer on the dark web's basement. Um, I wonder if that wouldn't have something to do with the, with the machine elf uh, well, tinkering. I'll tell you that there's a problem with that from the McKenna point of view, because one of his most, you know, really powerful and repeated uh, points of view is, is to not use synthetic drugs that he was very much growing and harvesting. I mean, he was a botanist and, right. and his, his place true. in yeah. Hawaii was fully devoted to this. And he used both literally and, and, and metaphorically, he talked about the, the distinction between relying on a drug that had proven itself in the world and within culture for centuries, if not thousands of years, versus something newly synthesized mm. in the laboratory. Mm. I mean, if he were alive right now, he would have some concerns about the vaccine because he had a concern about everything newly synthesized, purely because yeah. there just isn't enough track record. So the machine elves may be, you know, in your experience, that may be connected to the synthetic nature, but certainly not in McKenna's. So I think we're going to have to leave that experience open and maybe do a little bit more research into uh, sure. yeah. how he arrived at that. Because you and I, we, you know, it, it is something that he repeatedly says. So I think that's interesting. But I want to get back to that that verb tinker. Uh, and, and people may know that, that, that tinkers, there are sort of two uh, meanings of that as far as I know. Um, one is, is a, a clockmaker or a kind of appliance fix-it person. Um, and you could have, uh, you know, to the point where it was respectable enough to have that maybe on uh, a business shingle out in front of your shop. You know, um, it's, it's an outdated term now because we just throw everything away, don't we? Um, but tinkers were also a kind of uh, a gypsy group, not like the Romani gypsies of um, the Mediterranean and into Europe. Uh, they were ethnically different. They were uh, wandering nomadic people uh, in, in the UK, basically England, Scotland, and Ireland, Ireland particularly. And they were, a lot of people think of them as Irish gypsies. And, and I met some once, and uh, I found them absolutely fascinating. They were a look back to uh, another world entirely. And there are some equivalents, there are some networks um, you may have heard of the term the Johnson family, which William Burroughs uses, mm. uh, which is kind of has two meanings. One is it's really good down to earth people, salt of the earth people. And the other meaning is that it's a, it's a family, a network of conmen, you know, and uh, not like carnival people, but real serious con people, uh, mainly in your like in your parts, part of America, Oklahoma, um, Texas. Uh, particularly during the Depression, um, mm -hmm. people living this alternative um, communal uh, but certainly itinerant nomadic lifestyle. And I, I wonder if, if you think about that for a moment, if there isn't some sense of the other in this, mm. this group of people. I mean, think about how important it was to get settled and, and, you know, to dig some, put some roots down, you know, in a little mm. village or a community. And what are the things that really intrigue you or scare you? 
Well, it's the travelers. It's whether it's traveling salesmen or the carnival or, you know, uh, individuals, you know, someone comes to town, someone leaves town, that kind of thing. But imagine mm-hmm. how um, the, the atmosphere surrounding a group of people who were really putting up an alternative idea of community and taking it on the road and, and weren't carnival people. Exactly. You know, they didn't have that. It was a little bit more mysterious and a little bit harder to place. So I can mm-hmm. see like, a, you know, your average working, you know, person, you know, a wheelwright, for instance, or something. And you see these people camped out on the edge of town and you think, are they stealing stuff? And maybe they are. And maybe the kids get away and and swipe some stuff off a laundry line. And maybe Mm -hmm. the men in town go out and bang the hot chick. You know, yep. and right. it's uh, it's kind of like you know she's the little Egypt hoochie coot. You know, there's a lot of the carnival that world that that crosses over into this. So I think there could be some sense of these machine elves. I'm not sure about the workshop side of it. I think that's curious, but that certainly the tinker side were people like rainmakers. You know, do you, mm-hmm. have you ever seen like mm-hmm. any, you know, like the old wagon and there'd be all these mm-hmm. great sound noise making things of pots and pans yep. and the person mm-hmm. would come through an Oklahoma town and right. um, and maybe there'd be rain and, and they would be a hero or maybe mm-hmm. they'd be tarred and feathered, you know, but right. the sense of of the other uh and when I lived in, uh, in France, I lived in Bourges, which is about 200 kilometers south of Paris. And mm-hmm. it's, 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 a very, it's a cathedral city. Um, sort of a, well, not a city, it's a regional town. Uh, but it has a very mysterious history of, Berry is the, is the province, is, is the, and it has a, a history of witchcraft and belief yeah. in strange things. And the woman who was the, uh, the mother figure of my family, very strange woman, she was from Paris and always hated not being in Paris. But she was obsessed with the gypsies living in the marsh. This was like, yeah. you know, this was not that long ago. And her big fear was that the gypsies would come and heave wild potatoes at the wooden door. Yeah, 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 yeah. It I mean, reminds it <laughs> reminds me of um it's as recent as, you know, four or five years ago when when my second novel was published by Ravage in uh in France, they flew me out to uh Montpellier and then we we kind of drove out to Set. Have you ever right, been to yeah. Set? Mm-hmm. Uh it's this great city on uh on the on a river with you know, they have gondola jousting. I remember being extraordinarily hungover and watching gondola jousting. And we went further still to a small town called Frontignon, which is kind of right on the Mediterranean there. And uh, we were having our lunch, or I'm sorry, our dinner actually. And, you know, drinking this just very sweet uh, wine that, you know, people who are more into wine told me wasn't very good. But at that time, if it was free and it was alcohol, put that in my face, you know, I I will take it down. But uh, yeah, some some gypsies showed up there, and some of the locals, you know, in hushed tones, told us to, to to watch ourselves. And they just sort of walked in. You know, this is a private party, and they were very very charming. Um, terrible, terrible teeth, terrible dental work. 
uh, but very charming people, uh, sort of dressed very beautifully. Uh, the man had a kind of uh, like a an old fedora on and a kind of trench coat. He looked like both of them looked like artifacts from the 1930s or 40s, and they sort of just hung out and talked to people. Uh, and everybody was constantly checking their wallets right. the entire time. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was this. It was this palpable sense, and I've met people like that um, since then who have been involved in the occult and magic, and they all sort of carry that same aura about them, right? This kind of outsider, you know, potato-throwing energy. It's very, very interesting. I mean, it's certainly something that's not made up. I mean, it could be, you know, as with all of these mythologies— uh, it, it's something that we get programmed to to expect and, and we begin to imagine it and we begin to be co-creators. And I think that we'll come around to, to saying that's the unifying factor across all of these is that we, we feel like we can be co-creators even if we forget we're doing that. And some of our co-creation is, is not good. We're stereotyping, you know, we're doing, you know, all sorts of things. You could say we're stereotyping aliens too. Um, mm-hmm. But I think what what is really uh, very, very odd is that these patterns of belief move through time fairly intact, fairly yeah. intact. And, right. you know, you, you look at... Um, well, look at knowledge. Look at look at trying try to explain any you know like why are there 180 degrees in a triangle? Well, you can explain that to your blue in the face to people, and it just goes in one ear and out the other. Uh, there's some if you if you ever you know as a teacher you know you, you can just work so hard to get across. This is the subject of a sentence. This is the object. Uh, you know, there's a difference between a transitive verb, you know, and an intransitive verb. On and on and on, and all of that just seems to evaporate. But then you look at what persists over time, what patterns of belief, patterns of understanding, whether or not it's real understanding or not. It's very, very odd. These these are actually robust communal messaging uh, transmission of magic uh, systems. They really are. And I I, I think that's one of the keys to it somehow. and you can't just say, well, they're stories or they're a motif or they are a mythology, therefore they're robust. Because some are not. Some just disappear and, and, and dwindle away. There is a world, a universe of lost stories and dreams and ideas that, that we've never heard of because they didn't right. survive. The ecology, you know, we, you know, weeded them out. So some of these things are really... Uh, Really interesting. And I, so if we look at the gypsy thing or the tinker thing, let's combine those up against the, the space alien. How does mm-hmm. that reference now? Well, it references as something that comes into sort of agreed upon safe spaces and begins to mess with things. Both of them, the tinker, the gypsy tinkerers and the aliens, uh, violate in a certain way, um, whether that's through uh, actual sexual violation in the case of some of the alien stories or 
stealing your wallet in the case of the Tinkerers. Um, they do have a fundamental otherworldliness, pretty obviously in the aliens, but something that probably would need to be subjectively experienced um, in the human form. Um, mystery and, uh, yeah, that's, that is a, actually a pretty solid comparison in, in my eyes. Um, I do think that the real difference obviously would be that the gypsies go home. As far as I know, they go home and go to sleep at night and you could potentially go to wherever it is that they're staying in their caravan or what have you and knock on their door and talk to them, which would not be the case for space aliens, but I, I think there are plenty. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't be so sure you could knock on their door because there are a lot of stories where they just disappear, where the caravan just vanishes. And, and it ties in with the caravan Sarai uh, tradition across uh, North Africa, across the Sahara, uh, and, and, and the Great Silk Road, too. I, I think it really is a very strong link, actually. And in the term mysterious travelers, you know, that's used mm -hmm. for aliens, it's used for comets, and it was certainly used for gypsies. But um, in the French family, uh, there was uh, one of the, the sons who was kind of a loser and had had three uh, weddings fall apart on him. And I could sort of see why. And he was a real believer in all of the, uh, the latest sensational headlines of, of the day. Mm -hmm. um, and he was a great gossip he was kind of like a tabloid newspaper unto himself. And uh, I would go out wandering in, in this marsh area, which is quite beautiful. And in, in wintertime, it was, it was you know, free, a little bit free of snow because it was a pretty cold winter that year. And I remember vividly uh, he grabbed my arm going out the cobblestone lane one day. And he wanted to make sure um, that I didn't meet up with this one gypsy girl who was known in town because he said, if you ever have sex with a gypsy girl, you're, you're gone, you're lost. Mm. Uh, and I said, well, you know, what will happen? I said, that sounds fantastic. What do right, you mean? Exactly. What are you we know? working with here? You know, it's like, if, if, if you're about a, again, if you're about a bottle in, you're weighing your options pretty carefully. You have to yeah. get very specific here. Uh, so I think that what we've got, you know, it's interesting too that that the UFO thing really. I'm not saying that we didn't, we haven't had un unidentified flying objects before. There was the whole airship thing in the 19th century, and on and on and on. But it seems to get really cranked up around the era of rock and roll, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. suddenly all this sexual energy gets released and, you know, yeah, there are kids still drinking chocolate malts and stuff, but, you know, they're not just thinking about going to the hop, you know, they're, yeah, they're thinking right. about hopping into the back of the car, you know? Yep. Mm -hmm. So there's all of this sexual energy and, and some of it's not even sexual in any sort of formulated way. It, it, it's, it's much vaguer than that, but it's nonetheless very powerful. Um, and then I think there's also the sense that, that there was, uh, in America for sure, there was a much greater uh, interconnection uh, between the races. So there was a mm -hmm. lot of, of 
energy that was flowing around that didn't really have an articulate frame. So mm -hmm. I can see why an alien presence would emerge. And I kind of wonder if, here's one way to think about this. I'm just thinking about this now. Do we have uh, aliens because of UFOs or do we have more of an attention to UFOs because of aliens and all these different ideas of aliens, you know? Yeah, I, I love these chicken and egg questions, which we kind of keep coming back to. And I, I do think that, well, you'd have to go back in time and see if there were any sort of mythological story. You know, you do have stories of, you know, flaming chariots and things like that that are popularized by shows uh, that I don't have a whole lot of time for, like Ancient Aliens on the History Channel and things like that. But the the, the ships, the crafts themselves, do seem to pop up after this energy burst that you're talking of, by the way, that I think is documented very artistically in the film work of David Lynch. I think that's exactly what his project has been over the past 40 years or so is documenting he he tends to have a thing about electricity mm -hmm. uh especially <laughs> especially in you know twin peaks it's often uh you know the the kind of the bad guys or you know if you want to look at them this way the alien figures in twin peaks and mulholland drive tend to appear uh with the sound of crackling electricity right so he he tends to put this moment uh lots of longing shots of you know telephone poles and electrical grids and things like that he flickering tends to lamps yeah flickering lamps exactly right and he puts it right when you said uh you know chocolate malts i immediately thought of him because he does have one foot in the world of the you know the 1950s diners and another foot firmly in the the fallen debased world of our current time right and it's usually through the juxtaposition of those two things especially in films like Blue Velvet that make them so effective, right? That kind of loss of innocence. But if I were to be doing a close reading of his film work, I think he's kind of right on track with what you're saying here, that there was something that happened right around, could we put it at 1947? Maybe. It, uh, it, it, that's a handy shorthand. I mean, I just, I think we don't have to be, you know, hard and fast about that, but I think it does work from so many points of view mm -hmm. to where he's essentially saying that some kind of portals got opened right and creatures both from our past and from our future seem to congregate around these these energy points right i hope i'm not misrepresenting too much what you're saying here but that's that's where no, my mind went no to you're not at all i think that's saying. I think that's that's an you know it's it's a very good extrapolation or extension of what I was saying. Um, I, no, I think that's exactly right, and I think we can work our way back to a connection with Bigfoot because my um, my hallucinatory world, uh, not just literal hallucination experiences, but a kind of ongoing thing. I would put them very much in terms of of Wilhelm Reich's vision. Of, yeah. of a kind of, you know, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, a biological, uh, you know, 
reconvening of the past from this, you know, the single cell organism on up, you know, in jellyfish mm-hmm. and amphibious sort of creatures. My, my deal is, is, is uh, it's not that I don't have a mechanical uh, thing to it, but it's much more biological. And, and when I read Reich, um, and Jung was a little bit in this too, but it's much more of uh, a cellular biological metaphysics that seems to be contained in an evolutionary way and, and transmuted and transported through time in a way that I can understand. I mean, I think it's perfectly reasonable that we would have a kind of cellular memory of mm-hmm. the entire mm-hmm. existence. And in that sense, although we talked last time about Bigfoot not being seen literally as the missing link in the Darwinian sense of that, um, I think that there is that in terms of a Reichian sense, that this is the moment, that Bigfoot was the moment where the whole path diverged in a different way. And I, I think there is a link. Uh, we'd have to do more thinking about this, but there's some kind of link between what Bigfoot represents, what the gypsies and tinkers represent, and then at the on the far end, in I think more of a temporal ter- you know terms of of new technology, government uh, suspicion. That's where the aliens are going. So we've got a kind of motif mess. Imagine yeah. we've got a big table. You know, we're, we're in our lab. Yeah, and we took got, all the toys out and threw them across the floor. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, and we've got our hands in this stuff, and it's it's coming we're alive. We're tinkering. <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah. moving in between forms. And, and I think that that is the way that that because I've just been doing a lot of work with with folk and fairy tale motifs, and you know they just don't stay on the table. They get right. up and move around and they start attacking each other and they start humping and, and you know, <laughs> moving into each other's yeah. worlds, you know? Uh-huh. uh-huh. It's, uh, and I, I, so something of that is what's going on here, I think, you know? I love it. And I think that we're going to take a break for a moment here. We're going to pick up with our second half of the conversation for our Patreon subscribers. Um, we are going to move into some interesting territory in the second half. Uh, would you like to give a brief overview of that before we before we take a break? You, I don't know if listeners can hear. There's my there's my son, so I'm going to go calm him <laughs> before we well, continue. I, I will just say one thing to to launch this uh, this new series of our paywall uh, version. That we we are going to not only deep dive topics that we raised in our first you know free. Uh, hour of discussion, but, but the, the nature of the conversations will change as well as the content. We're going to be doing a little bit more structured work. Uh, we're going to be looking at um, some more controversial issues, not necessarily every time. And I, I think what will be interesting about them is that they will emerge kind of organically. It's not like either David or I have a, an agenda that we want to put forward, but there will be a different tone and a different kind of structure. And I think people... Uh, who enjoy our conversational uh, discourse in the, in the first hour. Uh, we really appreciate that. Uh, we want to make sure that we're offering something different uh, mm-hmm. behind the paywall curtain. You know, we're, we're, we, yeah. we're going to 
put on different clothes, you know? Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Patreon-exclusive bonus content for this uh, second Patreon-exclusive No Country. Uh, thank you so much for your patronage. It is much appreciated. I think you're going to be very happy with the content that we have for this particular episode. Chris, how are you feeling since we last spoke, uh, oh, I don't know, 15 minutes ago? I'm very excited, David. I, I've, I've just, I, I, you know, it just gets better and better. Doesn't it, though? I agree. I definitely agree. I, we're just, we're moving right along, and we got big things planned, and this is the highlight of, uh, highlight of our weeks here. We, we just dig talking about this kind of stuff and talking to each other. I have a, this, this great... Uh, sort of mentor friend figure in my life and I just couldn't be happier to to be involved in this uh, relationship not to get too mushy about the whole thing but you know it's important that your bros know how you feel about them I think I think we're too cagey right I think that's that's really true I think there's you know a lot of of playing close to the chest which is you know a wise move in poker but I don't know if it's such a great move in life, you know. There, there um, was a something I saw. It was about frog and toad, and of course, it's Pride Month this month, and people are debating whether or not frog and toad were a homosexual couple. And the point that I saw that was so great was that you know the debate over whether frog and toad are gay really shows how our culture doesn't understand <clears throat> that profound friendship is its own type of love, right? You assume, you know, they're together all the time. They're riding tandem bikes. Must be gay, right? Well, <laughs> not exactly. Right. Not exactly. Yeah. But we, I promise, uh, listeners, we're not going to talk about Frog and Toad this whole episode. As a matter of fact, uh, Chris has some very cool things planned. So, Chris, you want to kick us off here? Okay. And I would remind people that, you know, in Australia and uh, Cockney rhyming slang, for the, you know, the frog and toad is let's hit the road, you know? Mm. So it's travel. Let's do it. Let's do and, it. And that's what we're doing. Well, look, I found, I'm very proud of this book. It came out in 2012 through uh, a really cool publisher in uh, the UK, PS Publishing. It's called Eat Jellied Eels and Think Distant Thoughts or... The Conspirocrats. This is my book. It's it, if you can get a hold of one, there, there's there's a limited number of signed editions. I, I I encourage you to. It's a very strange little beast, but I'm very proud of it. But I want to just share the extended subhead. And Exclusive the content. Page. Exclusive content. Here we go. Being but a suggestive meditation on dark truths that lie behind modern strangeness and the secret pandemic of Western civilization. Whoever knows the whole story has not survived. I like, I, I wrote that in 2012. I think that's yeah, uh, that's great. Interesting. But here's the opening. And it ties into some of the... Uh, the mythology issues that David and I have been talking about in our uh, free segment and also the historical moment when some of these came to a strange point of magnetic harmony. The opening is, let us say a critical mass, prompt and utter destruction, Stuffed animals snow down softly through the clouded air of Operation Morningstar. 
a ghost war mystery combat mission for super deformed cartoon characters, Enola Gay, the great artiste and necessary evil. Boxcar, Gadget, Little Boy, and the Fat Man. Obscene vaudeville demons unleashed in a samurai sky as enriched uranium and thousands of bugs bunnies fall from grace to empire beneath riveted steel wings. And what's up, Doc? A violet halo crack of ozone and vaporized conscience, perhaps? Some of the singed bugs, bunnies, later appearing in the pulverized concrete of the graveyard metropolis, the human bodies of the bombed not faring so well, turned to rice and sand, pieces of skin flash-burned with patterns of kimonos, Souls flittering like origami ash in the radiation-poisoned morning. Toys know how to survive, even at ground zero. The real ground zero. If they do not now accept our terms, they may expect a rain of ruin from the air, the likes of which has never been seen on this earth, the man from Missouri said. There is a long-standing urban myth that in addition to the payload of atomic weapons dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the United States also included cratefuls and cratefuls of stuffed Bugs Bunny dolls, which conspiracists allege was intended as a kind of perverse anti-morale tactic Pentagon officials have steadfastly denied these allegations over the years, and it's difficult to imagine what could be a stronger anti-morale initiative than the equivalent of several kilotons of TNT. Yet the legend persists, and some of the Japanese survivors of the blasts claim to have kept remnants of the damaged toys, which have been passed down in secret as ritual objects of memory magic. As historian Derwin Hutler has said, given the curiously poetic thinking and the invocation of various mythologies on the part of the American military science complex, it must be said that there is some plausibility to this rumor. Although a lack of any definitive proof outside private secret whispering circles. It could be argued, however, that in the aftermath, the Japanese responded with a bombardment of toys and cultural icons all their own. So that's the opening of Eat Jellied Eels and Think Distant Thoughts. And the man from Missouri is, of course, Harry S. Truman. The S not standing for anything. He just liked the sound of it. One of the few American judges who's never a lawyer. And one of the only, the only president who uh, was a failed haberdasher or men's store owner. That's fantastic. Just fantastic writing to begin with. Uh, aesthetically... It's perfect, but I also detect within the text um, some of the themes that we're going to be talking about today. 
specifically those those Bugs Bunnies dropped for questionable reasons, um, particularly the kind of materialization of some of these myths that we've been been talking about. But I know that you have a you have a sort of a more bird's eye view of the whole thing, and then we'll get more specific as we go on. So what are we gonna what are we gonna start with here? Well, uh, you, you're spot on in terms of, of, of how this connects with some other things that we've been talking about and some big underlying themes and arcs and uh, currents in our river. Uh, you talked earlier in, in an episode about um, the importance of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in your pantheon, your personal pantheon, mm-hmm. kind of, of of gods. And I, I think the pantheon of God idea how we, we merge across popular mythologies where we do have gods and divinities and great, grand, moral and dream psyche themes mixing with pretty crass merchandise is, is part of the syncretic nature of yeah. human culture. And syncretic is a word that David and I use quite a bit. We believe in it. Uh, it, it has to do with how a culture incorporates the religious and mythological entities of another culture into their own mythology. So it's an integrative, absorptive strategy. There are certain cultures in the world who are particularly excellent at it. Uh, West Africa and the Caribbean, the whole African diaspora culture is, is phenomenal at it. But, but it's a human characteristic, and it works across all folk, folktale, fairy tale, mythological and religious beliefs. But mm-hmm. here's my uh, starting point idea to get us rolling, not just in this episode, but but I think in a larger sense with how we want to explore things. It's a mechanism, it's a tool for looking at uh, this segment of the No Country podcast. I've talked about my idea of culture being an inhabiting force, a force, and language is its mechanism. And people, you know, say to me, look, yeah, well, that's very interesting. That sounds cool. Uh, but but it sounds very metaphysical and woo-woo and, and, and where is it going? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I think an equivalent, uh, and I'm certainly not claiming this level of stature, but I think it, it has some of the same problems that Jung's collective unconscious has. It's, it's, a, it's a metaphor that sounds interesting and we want more information. How does it work? What's, what's the mechanism for it? Mm-hmm. So my framework is crystal radio. Some of us may remember having made crystal radios as kids. I hope young Gus gets a chance to make a crystal radio. It's a very exciting home project, primitive in the extreme. But it's a great learning lesson. Crystal radio, pirate radio. I can remember just the edge of Wolfman Jack broadcasting from Mexico on this super blaster that would come through at night, you know? And when Mm -hmm. the radio was, it would have this power and he could be anywhere, you know? I mean, we we didn't have any idea, but it was this immense force. Crystal radio, pirate radio, ghost radio. And the ghost radio uh, has two resonances for me. I 
I've made actually a whole series of, of ghost radio recordings in various parts of America. I've done one in Gettysburg. I did one with the Little Bighorn. I've done Okefenokee Swamp. You know, I just, what, trying to catch the spirits. Spirit catching is a great Native American uh, tradition. And, and I think it's an interesting idea to apply our technology and apply our mythological thinking to trying to capture some of the spirits. And this is also uh, one of the things that the, some of the schizophrenic homeless people around me say they're doing. And David and I have been from the start of this program concerned about including, in our thinking at least, what these outsider artists wandering around our neighborhoods have going on in their minds. They're, they're, they're kind of brujos, you know, they're, they're, they're shaman in a, in, a, in a kind of weird way. So crystal radio, pirate radio, ghost radio. And this ties in with Rupert Sheldrake's idea of the, well, the analogy of the, of the television set, which is an interesting take on Plato's allegory of the cave. Uh, David and I are huge fans of Rupert Sheldrake. He's an immensely important scientific figure. Uh, he's kind of an arch enemy of, of Richard Dawkins, who's one of our arch enemies. Uh, yes. But he, he proposes a, a very lateral and spiral uh, notion of where human consciousness comes from. And it, it, it's a broadcast mechanism. So that, yes, we do have a physical brain and, and a, certainly a physical neurochemistry. But that's not the seat of consciousness and memory and all thought. What, what that really is is a great uh, receiving mechanism. So... The question is, where are we receiving these signals from? We know now that Wolfman Jack was broadcasting from just over the border in Mexico. Uh, Jung did not really have an answer of where the collective unconsciousness is, is broadcast from. I'm hoping that we can together work out where the ghost radio signal is coming from. Uh, I, I believe it's an interdimensional kind of idea, and I'm not talking about an H.P. Lovecraft sort of, you know, tentacled elders uh, thing, but maybe, who knows? But we have to at least posit that the human brain is not the center of memory, consciousness, and certainly not the center of language. And if we can locate where this ghost radio signal is coming from, I think we would have a way of understanding some of the issues that David and I have been talking about in our earlier free episode, mythologies such as the UFO phenomenon, uh, Bigfoot, Loch, the Loch Ness Monster, the world of Charles Fort meeting Carl Jung's collective unconscious. So that's my thought about where we might go. I love it. And what I love about it is that it's such a big idea that it will require a lot of discussion and a lot of discussion from our listeners as well. So folks who have subscribed to the Patreon, you're the first people to hear this. And we very specifically want to hear from you. We want to hear your thoughts about exactly what it is that we're talking about. Because as we've rounded the bend of our 40th episode here, I, I think it's about time to synthesize a lot of this information into maybe a really cool theory 
Unfortunately, when it comes to the technical side of things, I'm not much of a mathematician, so there won't be very much in the way of equations, but sort of conceptually, narratively, and theoretically, I think that we can come up with something something very cool. But I'm curious, first of all, about this crystal radio idea, because I'm slightly embarrassed to say that this is the first that I've heard of it. So what exactly is a crystal radio, and how does this fit into your your trifecta? Okay, no, look, that's totally cool. It, it's something, honestly, that... Um, was kind of um, outdated when, when I was a kid. But if you look at back at, at the popular mechanics, popular radio sites, you will find it, it's a home science project. It, it's, a, it's a kind of way um, of, of making a, a working primitive radio for essentially boys in, in their bedroom in, in the 1950s. And now anyone can do it. Um, it was sort of a boy's thing then. But it's very simple. It, it's based on just getting some copper wire. You know, um, I, I think that if you just have a Google, on it, you'll, you'll find there are kits available. But um, in a few years time, it would be something fun to do as a home project with Gus. Um, but it, it really is about taking hold of science and, and in a very homemade kind of garage. sort of way. isn't a garage a wonderful word, uh, even if you don't have one? You know, one of the um, just as a side note, in my uh, textbook, uh, when I'm talking about the nature of, of imagination, one of the case studies, because I want to you know, put a little bit of a human face on it, you know, not just talking theory, is a, a neighbor of mine. He's in seventh grade. I think he gets bullied, you know, but he that hasn't dimmed his spark. And his great line is, uh, we don't have a garage. Mom thinks I'm making stuff in it, you know? And I just think that, that there it is. There it is. That yeah. is exactly what's going on. And my, my first thought was, I don't care if that kid ever writes a book. I'm going to buy every one and read them, you know? Right. Oh, it's I love just it. Like, yeah. yeah, that's great. We don't even have a garage. Mom thinks I'm making stuff in it. That's yeah. kind of the crystal radio idea. But I, I think we could look at that in terms of, of a reference point to uh, one of our uh, Pantheon heroes, Charles Fort. He was a, a kind of a personification of the crystal radio idea of, of taking technology, taking ideas, bringing it down to the garage uh, dinner table level. You know, um, God, I remember when people used to do things at the dinner table, you know, and now I, I know a bunch of families that don't, I don't think they ever even sit at a dinner table. Um, we were like, you know, taking out maps and spilling paints and, you know, and then my sister would dance around and do. So it's that kind of do it yourself, take control, get back into the game of engaging with learning in a fun sort of, you know, broken, primitive, silly sort of way. Um, but that's how people learn. And an interesting thing about it, so, so wire wrapped around a cylinder is kind of a key element of, of the technology, this very primitive technology. And one of the things that I realized when I moved to the Southern Hemisphere, uh, America wasn't always seen as the great thing. In the back blocks of, of 
of Malaysia and Borneo and places in New Guinea, a lot of the expertise that, that was really appreciated were Australians who'd grown up on farms. And one of the symbols that they carried was a piece of fence wire, you know? And that was a symbol of like, you can fix anything with a fence, you know, a piece of fence wire, you know? And I think a lot of women that I've known have that kind of improvisational genius with, uh, with nothing, you know? I had a girlfriend once who, like, what she could do with tweezers, you know, is like, that's, that's engineering genius right there. So I hope that's an answer to what, what the crystal radio side of it is. It, it's uh, a reclaimed humanist grassroots family garage level, whether you have one or not, um, ability to process innovation, technology, and some of the larger mysteries that those uh, fields of endeavor are supposedly making available to us all, and maybe not. It reminds me of the film from the early 2000s, Be Kind, Rewind, uh, directed by Michelle Gondry, who did, I think his best film is probably Eternal Sunshine of the, of the Spotless Mind. Yes, I remember that one. Yeah, he's known as this very innovative, creative filmmaker, and the characters in the film, played by Jack Black and Most Deaf, uh, make a sort of get a little bit famous by creating uh, their own versions of popular films using household objects. So it's just it's this very creative film of you know watching these VHS recreations of. Ghostbusters and Star Wars, where they're using, you know, kitchen utensils as the proton packs that the Ghostbusters use and like all these kind of fun, practical effects. That's a perfect riff on what I'm talking about. That is absolutely perfect. You know, the 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 key to uh, understanding a, a, a code is not being able to translate it, but it's being able to send a message back. I say mm-hmm. that in my book, and you just did that beautifully. That's a beautiful performance of that idea. It isn't just go, well, you said this. No, you riffed on it, and that's exactly what it's about. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that also is, in a larger way, what this whole podcast is, you know, where a couple of guys who have pretty good heads on our shoulders, uh, but we're not scientists, we're not mathematicians we're not biologists we're, we're none of these these things specifically but we push back against the idea that you need to be any of those things to create a kind of uh you know a kind of theory of things i still wonder i believe it was our third or fourth episode but i still think about the throne of the third heaven mm, and beautiful what he, work what he was doing you know i think about these projects that last people their entire lives. I watched a documentary recently about a guy named Terry Davis, who was a schizophrenic who created his own operating system from scratch. Uh, and it's widely known as being incredibly clunky and uh, also quite ugly, but it was called Temple OS. And he believed it to be uh, the Lord's third temple on earth as prophesied in the Bible. And uh, the documentary is a great depiction of his, you know, unfortunate descent into his schizophrenia and eventual suicide. But, you know, this kind of concept of people who have um, the curiosity and the, 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 the kind of uh, 
stomach to to go out there and create these kind of projects and put things together and sort of solder and and use those copper wires to uh create things i think is what's uh what's missing from from the kind of uh scientist worship that we're seeing right now where you know people who went to schools and have phds are 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 put on these pedestals and frankly unfortunately they just they don't really have anything interesting to say they're they're all busy inventing a new iphone which we don't need we we have 12 of them at this point we have our pick as far as i'm concerned well, it's like new ways to order pizza isn't it yeah. uh but i um one of my um Teaching techniques is, is keyword focus, and I love the verb solder. Yeah, oh, uh, I do too. I, I, I have some uh, good, hardcore, old-time, real engineering-type friends, and they, you know, talk about soldered in, you know. Mm-hmm. It, 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 you know, that really means something. And if you've ever, you know, done any soldering or welding, you know, shit gets real. You know, you think, I I want this clean. I want this tight. I don't want any mess, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to get, you know, it's hot. It's, you know, it's metal. It's intense. You know, it's just, it gets really right down to something. Um, But I do want to pick up on on, on one thing, which I hope will, it's kind of been a theme of ours from the very start, but I want to make sure that listeners are aware of it, that David and I really do have a great reverence for, the people we, we call outsider artists in, in a whole range of media. We're, we're very interested in, in scientists who are pushing the envelope. And at the same time, we, we are conscious always and, and within our own lives that there, there are elements of, of madness in, in the visionary people. You know, and to use a term that I really love that means a lot physically to me because some people taught me how to do it. We want to sail close to the wind on that, you know. Right. That right. that's the thing that we want to do. We want to sail right on the wind, mm-hmm. um, and it, that's a that's you know has some problematic positions from time to time. But everything interesting does, you know, yeah. love affairs, any kind of learning, got to sail close to the wind. Absolutely, and so that brings me to pirate radio, which I have a very. Um, it's very close to my heart, even though I didn't experience a whole ton of pirate radio growing up. It's one of those phenomena that's very common for people of my generation of having a nostalgia for a thing that I never experienced. But it does make me think of driving between Oklahoma and El Paso when I was 18, and I had a 1998 gold Lincoln Town car, a really cool drug dealer car, although I wasn't a drug dealer. <laughs> the windows all blacked out. Uh, with the roads between El Paso and Oklahoma, now there's a very nice stretch of highway that goes between them, and it cut about three hours out of the drive time. But back then, you had to take some relatively frightening uh, two-lane roads through, you know, Oklahoma prairie and brush, moving into the kind of uh, the the desert area of El Paso. And I do this drive by myself, and being a younger guy uh, who didn't know that there was anything that I should be afraid of, I would often do these drives very late at night. And I would tune my radio on the AM band to uh, whatever I could really find because I loved listening to these uh, tinny, distant voices that felt like they were coming from the blackness that was around me. So 
there'd be replays of yeah, they of, were <laughs> of coast to coast. They, they were exactly, and there'd be uh, you know everything from Rush Limbaugh uh, to coast to coast to you know preachers um, doing some fire and brimstone. It was always fire and brimstone. Put your hands on the radio. Put your yeah. hands on the great to, faith healer call. Yeah. To, to baseball games. And I've never been a huge baseball fan, but I'm telling you, when you're driving through the desert at 2 a.m., you know, just, you know, getting into El Paso and you're beginning to see the lights come up and you're listening to a baseball game, it feels like you're completely outside of time. So I say all of that stuff to say that the idea of someone actually broadcasting from a pirate ship or even, you know, an aluminum trailer in the middle of the desert with a big satellite dish on top of it, you know, with some beautiful blue mountains in the background, right? This, this idea of people who are broadcasting maybe to no one, you know, but who are doing so out of a, out of a love for the thing that they're, they're talking about. I think that podcasts in general have been great for this in their ability to democratize the, the, the radio waves, in a sense, because podcasts are just radio shows, right? It's a new name for an old thing that anybody can do now. But that that idea of, of, of these kind of forbidden, like what kind of strange, esoteric, and arcane knowledge can you gain by, you know, tuning two channels close to each other, maybe get a little bit of basket or a baseball game and a little bit of that fire and brimstone preacher, and maybe you can hear... A, a third voice in the middle of all of that. There's something very creepy and I'm actually getting chills thinking about it and cool about that experience that now, unfortunately, you know, I have Siri and satellite radio in my car, so I can listen to whatever I want, whenever I want, no matter where I am in the American desert. And, um, yeah, there's something, there's something a bit romantic that's lost in that. I think. Well, there definitely is in that trajectory uh, or that uh, decaying orbit, if you like, is is something that I think is one of our big themes. I mean, the magic of radio uh, really can't be underestimated. And I think for people who want to investigate the history of mass communications, it, which starts before uh, the, the real dissemination of, of electricity, but certainly comes to the fore with radio, I think we forget that one of the key things driving it was uh, the disruption of loneliness, you know, the the Mm -hmm. sharing of things. I mean, people maybe during COVID have felt, you know, disconnected from things and disconnected from, you know, themselves. But we have, you know, the problem is we have almost too much access. We've lost that that sense of magic of, of what the airwaves, I mean... Really, can you imagine what the airwaves, how much more of a definition of magic could you possibly have than Mm, that? mm -hmm, mm -hmm, You know? Yeah. Really, voices in the air. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I I remember when I was, I don't know, I guess 10, and I had this black Panasonic transistor radio. And I would lie in bed at night and I'd have the thing on my heart. I'd lie on my back and I'd have this. And I'd listen to Harry Carey, which many people know is one of the greatest baseball broadcasters of all time. It might be. It could be. It is. It's a home run. You know? Mm -hmm. And 
the Oakland A's were playing, you know, not that far away from me, which was kind of interesting. And Mudcat Grant, the, the great relief pitcher, Mudcat Grant. Can you imagine having an, like, I want to be, I'd like to be worthy of that kind of a moniker. Yeah. He'd come out in the ninth inning to save the game, one of the greatest relief pitchers of all time. So I think that that, that the idea of, of the radio that, that we're playing with here is a reconnection back to the larger cultural campfire, the world when language was passed hand-to-hand, mouth-to-mouth, you know? And, and what we're kind of, I think, unfortunately have have lost and I'm not, I'm going to have to go back and and really think about what Marshall McLuhan was talking about, because I I really don't know if he was that on top of where we've gotten to with the internet and social media and that loss of the magic. I, 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 I think the radio still has that. And maybe it's just the power of the human voice. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's entirely possible that that's it. Although I'm a big proponent of the aesthetic, almost tactile qualities of sound. And I think that there's just something about a voice that fades in and out uh, that's attached to a body that you've never seen um, that has a kind of magical quality that podcasts currently don't have because, you know, our voices are coming through loud and clear. We try to make this show sound pretty good. Uh, because that's just the standard of the day. And people n- can figure out what we look like if they type our name into the search box of Google, right? So there's a, there's the men behind the show are, are easily accessible. But um, with the ghost radio too, just to, to sort of, you know, cap that all off, um, nothing freaks me out more than listening to spirit box recordings uh, and you you always wonder when you hear these things, are you are you inventing the word yourself? Is it some kind of suggestion where somebody's telling you what to listen for and then you can hear it? Or is there actually a voice there? Right. But uh, anytime I hear those, I just get I get chills. There's something they're really the as as listeners know, we we, we talk about it, but we don't super, um, uh, you know, go into depth right because we want it to be a bit spontaneous but yeah there's something going on with with radio that i'd like to to think about some more because it's it is magic i think it, it's truly is it's a ceremonial meeting ground of mind and spirit and i think to fully appreciate it uh, listeners should really check out rupert sheldrake's analogy of the tv set because it, it's it's another version of this but I think where where we can go to and how we can use this as a tool is to unpack and, and explain a little bit further the strange world of these mythologies that that emerge in culture, whether it be UFOs or Bigfoot or uh, well, there's just a, really an endless stream of them, and I think that in itself is very interesting how how mythologies emerge out of nowhere. And it's part of, of urban you know, myths, urban legends. It's part of rumors. It's fake news. There's a lot of stuff going on with essentially the idea of the radio, of shared voices. And there are some really fantastic 
popular anthropology books on this about the nature of gossip. Uh, you know, Truman Capote said that all of literature is really just two neighbors talking over a fence. Mm. There's nothing. That's the starting point of it. And, and, and it's the story within the story within the story. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And especially when you start then acting things out or going, oh, wow, damn, yeah. You start riffing on things and building it together. I, this is where my greatest concern with young writers or, or even just young you know, students is galvanizing a collaborative, cooperative, communal let's put on a show in the old Judy Garland, you know, way. Um, and this is, a, this is the natural state of, of everyone. I mean, and I think this is so connected, interestingly enough, with the whole hip hop era, which I'm feeling a little bit disconnected. It seems like it's gone on a little bit long for me, but getting on the mic, getting on the mic. When, when, when that first started circulating, it was like being pilots, it was like, mm-hmm. I want to get behind the wheel, you know? I want, to, right. I want to get in the cockpit. And I think all of these things are terribly interesting because the common theme is we want to be part of a larger ceremony and a larger community. We don't want to be alone. It's very lonely being alone. Yeah. And we know that's artificial. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we don't want to be overwhelmed. We right. want to have some time in the mic. We want to have, we want to put in our requests. I mean, yeah. what a genius idea that was for radio. You know, we're sending out this tune now to David and Rios, you know. Mm-hmm. And that kind of idea really could have reinvented community in it our lifetimes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. And I think that when the internet was first invented, in a sense, it did because a lot of people who were, say, fans of Coast to Coast were able to meet up on things called message boards, which unfortunately don't exist anymore as they have been steamrolled under the giant uh, machine of gentrification that is Facebook and Twitter and places like that. But, (laughs) you know, the promise of the internet was that people would get together, people who shared interests, to, you know, make friends with each other, fight, fall in love, all of these things uh, in these decentralized uh, communities on the on the internet, right? So, man, it would be really nice to be able to bring those back. I hope we can turn the, the Patreon into a sort of message board like that where people can get to talking and, you know, create their own little communities. Well, as the Malaysian pirates, the first thing they said to me, Kita Bukulanam, which means we are not pirates. We're not pirates here, you know? (laughs) And yet, of course, they they have managed to stay pirates for hundreds of years. Um, You know, and I think that's the key is avoiding these giant gentrification channels. And to some extent, you know, know, creating a new means of of traction. Um, I mean, with... The ghost radio idea, which we want to prosecute and expand and extrapolate from, uh, we really do want community involvement with that. I mean, it would be really cool if that were to take hold within culture. But I don't know if that necessarily means that we have to monetize it. You know, we can monetize 
our, our, you know, our segment of our show. I don't necessarily think that we have to, you know, seize copyright on that because no, I think it's no. too big an idea. It's too, it is it, too big. It's too big. It's too cool. And frankly, it's too, too important in my opinion to do that. Um, I am curious, uh, as we started off with that great excerpt from Eat Jelly Deals and Think Distant Thoughts, to get back to the to the sort of Bugs Bunny idea, uh, how does that connect to what we're talking about here? What's the through line between those those two images, the the uh, the pirate radio and the charred Bugs Bunny doll? Okay, great question. All right. Um... I have to put forward the, 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 the second explanatory tier of the ghost radio idea. And if we could think of it in terms of a psychomagnetic spectrum, not an electromagnetic spectrum. I think people understand that idea, right? Mm-hmm. You can see that on your wall. Uh, we have in, on one end... Uh, what is a version of, of Jung's collective unconsciousness called Manong's Jungle. And we're going to go back to this. I think it might be too much for this one segment, but uh, Alexius Manong was an Austrian philosopher of language, famous for the theory of objects, and was interested in imaginary worlds, non-existent creatures. And you can think of, of, of Borges's wonderful book, uh, the book of of imaginary creatures, mm-hmm. but but he was thinking of it from a logic point of view, of why do we know what unicorns look like? Why do we have an idea of what Pegasus looks like? What about how can we even think of a square circle? So Manong's jungle is filled with all of the things that don't exist and yet do exist in human consciousness, and the theory that emerges out of it is that in a way. All of these strange growths and ecosystems, full-on ecosystems, not just individual entities or phrases or ideas, have come about through the mystery of language. That language has somehow given rise to paradoxes and peculiar uh, growths of its own. Hence the word jungle. I love the word jungle. Worth looking up the word jungle, where that comes from. but there's this rich, strange, phenomenal, and and always growing ecosystem within human consciousness somewhere. And I think that's a that's an idea that should be at least considered in parallel with with Jung's collective unconsciousness. So that's one side of it. Mm-hmm. And then down on the dirty street level, street corner end, the Seven Eleven end is what I call it. Merchandise, yeah. You know why do I know what aliens look? I I don't. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you why I know what aliens look like. I found a dog chewed alien this morning near my dog park, and I I I picked it up. It was you know stuffed with I don't know newspaper or maybe cotton or I don't know, not cotton, something cheaper, um, some sort of synthetic thing. But it had you know it was an alien, and I knew it instantly, and you would have known it too. And we, you know, how can that be? And I think to myself, you know, Dave and I have been talking about Bigfoot. And I thought, wait a minute, I've got pictures of my girlfriend, Lisa, sitting on Bigfoot's knee. I've got like a Bigfoot statue. I've got a Bigfoot button. I've got a Bigfoot this. You know, it's like Star Wars merchandise. 
So all of these interesting imaginative creations of the ghost radio world, in order to find uh, real substance, they need two things. They need to work their way through the interdimensional portal into language, but they got to get to that 7-Eleven counter so you can buy it. Mm-hmm. And that does seem to be the track that is very specific to the time that we live in. And we have mentioned on the show before the idea of capitalism as a hyperstitional being. And to reiterate what a hyperstition is, it's the, it's, well, it's an idea that becomes so prominent and so forceful that it takes on all of the qualities of an entity or a spirit or a God, right? Something, well said. With, something with a direction, right? Something with what is a vector, a, a telos, right? A goal of, of a thing that it wants to accomplish, right? And then we talked about accelerationism and how there is a entity called capitalism that exists somewhere in the future, probably a future that looks very much like the one in Terminator with robots stomping around crushing human skulls that is pulling through a psychomagnetic force, pulling civilization and human beings, spirits and all, into the future that it wants to uh, exist in, right? So what we have is a kind of beautiful, almost good and evil uh, series of entities here, right? So we, uh, on the one hand, I'm picturing this uh, Manang's jungle as sort of the light side, right? It's uh, it's a, a magical land that's full of these creatures that, again, there's that chicken and egg question that exists before they're ever drawn on a piece of paper, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that we all sort of know on and that we that we all sort of know and that we share between each other uh, through the mechanism of language. And then there is the the black hat, right? The evil one, the, the capitalist one that corrupts, right? That tempts, that uh, debases. I've been using that word a lot, I think, in the past couple of hours, but it's hard to think of a, of a better term for it, right? It, it feels like a nasty word to me, at least, debasement. I think it's a great word because it is nasty. It's it's groin sweat and butt smell and (laughs) street level stuff. No, I think debasing, degrading. What 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 we're talking about? I I I think you've sketched this out really well. Is is a vector that runs from the sacred, uh, really to the most debased level of secular ritualistic without any kind of ceremonial quality. I mean, isn't that interesting? Ritual without ceremony. That, that's a nice idea. Uh, and I think that's exactly what the, the capitalist uh, physicality of, of merchandising and monetizing and all of these, you know, this sense of materializing. Very interesting how we have the idea, of, you know, someone says they're very materialistic. Well, you know, other people use that term in like a materialist scientist like Richard Dawkins. You know, it's a confusion about that idea. We don't really mean there's anything wrong with uh, giving your, uh, you know, loved one a squeeze and having a fun Friday night. That's good materialism, Mm -hmm. good physicality. What we mean is that when materialism is a denial 
a denial of all things invisible, all things that aren't as, you know, as simple as putting it on your plate, like a big plop of, you know, mashed potatoes, you know, that's the, it's the denial aspect of it. And, and then the greed, you know, just the simple greed factor. Well, definitely. And I think it's maybe helpful to put it in terms of um, when what we're talking about, right? When uh, we can start with what a materialist would be looking at uh, when when talking about one of these mythical creatures, right? So you might see uh, a unicorn and the materialist would say, okay, I'm seeing points A and B. Point A is the horn, and point B is the horse. And we put those together, and we have these uh, cons- these constituent parts that make up a whole. And that thing is uh, soulless, and it's packaged, and then it's sold, right? What a more uh, spiritually-minded or holistic-minded person would see instead is the letter C, right? Which is a continuum of A and B in which... A and B are both uh, imminent properties of the thing that nevertheless do not describe intrinsically what that thing is, right? So it's a matter of inspirited uh, uh, creatures versus completely uh, despirited creatures. I hope that made sense. It It did make sense. And I think it's interesting for people to review uh, how unicorn as, a, as an idea, as a concept, has degraded further. It has several new usages, which my students have drawn my attention to. Which, So, you know, the possible uh, nature of degradation it seems to su- suggest that things can, can continue to collapse and they don't just crash land, they go underground. It, it, it's really quite remarkable, but think about the ma- think about the intensity of really a unicorn, and I I, I just remind was reminded of one of our earlier episodes. We were talking about Charles Darwin, a young Charles Darwin, in the Voyage of the Beagle days, and I related a moment which I think really caused him some spiritual and physical uh, distress. He's in Argentina. And, you know, here, here we have a, an extremely staid, conservative, deeply repressed British man of the 19th century. <laughs> and he sees a naked gaucho riding a horse, you know, and I think it almost did him in. It's one of the best moments in The Voyage of the Beagle. And he just didn't know how to process it. It was just, I don't know if it was homoerotic or not. I mean, I, I suppose you'd have to say it was. But it was more than that. It was more like a mythical, mystical thing of seeing something that we that didn't fit into the frame. And this is the key thing about all of these elements. They don't fit into a certain frame. They create a new frame. And that is the Charles Fort point of view, is that don't let your frame precondition, preempt, what you actually can perceive, you know, have, I think of Charles Ford as being a wonderful kind of uh, 
park ranger leading us into, you know, Manong's jungle and, and just sort of welcoming us around going, yeah, well, maybe you, you don't want to, you know, go. I think there's some quicksand over there and there might be this big monster around the corner. So I, I, I can't say it's all going to be cool, but, but we do want you to have fun and enjoy yourself and, and just try to pick up your trash as you move along. I, I, I think he's just this wonderful sort of avuncular uh, figure of possibility for average people outside the giant frame of elite education, mm-hmm. you know, which is yeah. becoming less elite every day because right. we don't have any education <laughs> at all. Right. You know, right. right. You know, and I, yeah. And I think one, one final kind of note on this, um, but this has been so much fun, man. This is so cool. But in the 1982 movie, Blade Runner, is one of my favorites based on Me the K. Dick book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Very different from the book, but worthwhile in its own right. Um, in the director's cut, Deckard, who is the police officer who is tasked with retiring replicants, I'm sure most people who are listening to this know the plot of Blade Runner, but essentially uh, robots are created, cyborgs in fact, are created in a ve- like to think that they're human, but they only have a lifespan of four years. So once they've sort of run their course, they're shut down, but some of them escape and assimilate into society and it's Deckard's responsibility to go out and, um, you know, kill them or quote-unquote retire them. However, in the director's cut, there is a scene where Deckard is trying, he's, you know, he's lost the plot on the case. He's trying to figure out which way to go. He's sitting in this great apartment, right? Like this this great architectural wonder. Um, and he's playing the piano and he falls asleep and he dreams. And what does he dream of? A unicorn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah. so there's uh, a lot of questions. Some of them are a little uh, mundane, if you ask me. You know, is Deckard a replicant or not? I, I think that that's, I don't know. I don't really care. Those aren't questions that really concern me. But it is interesting that while he is trying to uh, sort of puzzle out where these creatures who have gone who are humans, but not, but not exactly, because the film is very concerned with the question of soul and what it means to be a human being. And I think we are sort of supposed to get the idea that Deckard um, is in fact a a human. Um, And it's interesting that he taps into uh, this jungle, as a matter of fact, and what he sees is this imaginary shared creature of, of the unicorn, right? There's something very mystical and very strange going on with that. And uh, any opportunity that I get to talk about Blade Runner, I will take it. So well, you know, it's interesting that word shared, and I, I, I think, I, I don't know if we've actually used uh, the term democratic mm. on the show, but I think now is the time, is that, you know, there is something really democratic about Menong Jungle, the collective unconscious, our idea that's emerging of, of the ghost radio. Uh, you know, this is something that we all do share, and we, we have to find the right spirit, the right guide uh, to get back there. I, I have two thoughts about that word guide. I, I've written down, theme park was a, a huge idea for me when I was starting off writing. And in meme park and getting lost in a good way, you know, getting lost in a kind of garden of, of real possibility. 
I think that the Bigfoot idea made me think of, and I don't want to go into it too much now, but I will, we might return to this, of Tom Bombadil in yeah. uh, The Lord of the Rings. I don't know how what people think about the Peter Jackson uh, trilogy. Um, I mean, what can you say about Peter Jackson? Uh, I've met him, and he's very charming. Uh, he's a complete, you know, he is what he looks like. Um, mm-hmm. And I I, th- I congratulate him on that. I, I think that maybe he's changed since that success, but I don't know how much better a job someone could have done, but I was very disappointed that Tom Bombadil didn't enter into it because I think that that ancient, the ancient one, uh, the Methuselah figure beyond time, you know, he he's immune to the power of the ring because he's so old. He's beyond, he's older than that. And I wonder if that doesn't link in a little bit to the Bigfoot idea where we have someone or a creature that's not the missing link, that's kind of outside the evolutionary scheme. So I just, I don't know, I I, I throw that out. Um, But uh, there was something else that you said that really intrigued me. Um, I think we do have to think about... uh, Tom Bombadil and and Bigfoot in some way. I just have an intuition about that. That may just be, you know, my my deal. Um, but there was something else that you said that really, really um, was it Blade Runner related? Because we can talk yes, more it was. About oh, yes, it was. Want. Yes, it was. No, it was Philip K. Dick related. It was Philip K. Dick related. Okay. Um, I, I think that uh, Philip K. Dick has not been well served in 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 the movies. He he, he you know he wasn't writing action you know, huge sci-fi special effects movies. If people, one of his best short stories, and I think some of his best work was in the short story form, although I love some of his strange, the the really core strange novels. Mm -hmm. But if people know, uh, I hope that uh, I shall arrive soon, which was originally published in Playboy as The Frozen Journey. It is just a wonderful, wonderful look into mm-hmm. the Dick idea. It's a very simple premise, and it's been used since then. Uh, a lone space traveler uh, sent off in suspended animation is reawakened accidentally and is in trouble because, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to be a long haul. And the computer uh, comes to the rescue or desperately tries as a kind of therapist trying every trick in the book to keep this really neurotic Bay Area-based astronaut from reliving every romantic disaster and every roommate problem. And it is just an absolutely wonderful, wonderful story. If you read that up against Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, and David mm-hmm. and I have talked about Winnie the Pooh before, you get a fantastic sense of, of what neurotic, self-defeating, we're never going to get out of this mess kind of thinking can be. And, and I think this is a lot of where we are. It, th- those stories put a kind of humorous slant on it. We can kind of look at them and go, oh, okay, that's not so serious, and laugh. Um, but there's a dark side to all of this. And I think this is kind of where what we're trying to fight back against with a, 
a new kind of community, a re-enchanted idea that's more possible. You know, um, it's irony is cool and fun. Everyone gets that, but you know, we're sick of it. Yeah, it's over. Irony's done. Sincerity's back, baby. We're um, there. You go. There you go. As as a as a parting thought before we go, once again, thanks for uh, subscribing, listeners. We really appreciate it. Um, I'm finding these uh, Patreon episodes to be even more fun than the free episodes, and I don't know why that is. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I you know I needed some kind of permission from a paywall to to get really weird and fun with this kind of stuff. But I'm having a great time, and Me I'm really too. glad that you're along for the ride, folks. Um, as a parting thought, though, you know, you mentioned Winnie the Pooh again, and I'm thinking about language as a vector. An interesting experiment might be to go to somebody that you know. Now, Winnie the Pooh is very popular, so this may or may not work. Um, ask a stranger if they know what a woozle is. And if they don't recognize it as being from Winnie the Pooh, ask them to describe it to you that might be nice you know what i'm saying here right nice. like that might, i do i do might, might be a bit of a, a fun experiment there and if you do choose to do that listeners uh i would love to hear what kind of reaction you get of course again if somebody says oh yeah it's the thing from winnie the pooh they might mention the cartoon where the the sort of elephant creatures right um but yeah describe a woozle what, what is what is that and, uh, I don't know. Have the, I think you're talking about a heffalump as being an eff, elephant creature. Okay, yeah, that's right. I'm not sure. Hoff, hoff, a horrible heffalump, you know, when Piglet yeah. gets... Uh, but maybe, I, I don't know, maybe they have been, uh, you know, animated in some way. But, you know, the Marx Brothers said, you know, the password is swordfish. I think we should say the password is woozle. I like that idea. I do, too. I do, too. Well, folks, until next time, next week... Uh, Keep it real and uh, go make a crystal radio. That's exactly right. And we'll, we'll, we're going to keep prosecuting and extrapolating and building on this idea of where the ghost radio signal is coming from and how we can access it more, you know, with more fidelity. More fidelity, as they used to say.